Hello, Girlboss Radio listeners. We have a great guest coming up today. Journalist, author, LinkedIn influencer Emily Chang is here to talk about her new book, Brotopia. Yep, it's just what it sounds like, Brotopia, and how to break up the boys club of Silicon Valley. But first, I want to talk about my favorite pajamas called Lunya, L-U-N-Y-A. I have been living in my Lunya pajamas. I'm not even, this isn't like, this isn't even an ad. Like, I wrote them on Instagram just like effusively telling them like, oh my gosh, if I could just wear this all the time, I would. So they have these really cute like sleep sets and then they have like some kind of like jerseys. But the the, the thing I really love is their washable silk because I never buy silk pajamas. I mean, like what lady like doesn't get like a little bit of grease on her? Like you have to be able to wash your, your your jammies and I'm not going to take my silk to the dry cleaner like Mm-mm. I'm sleeping in it like I'm not that fancy so it's just like it's really nice breathable silk you know keeps you from sleeping in acrylic and they're like they're like sexy enough it's not like wearing like a giant like stretched out like see-through Garfield shirt that mm. goes down to like your knees mm-hmm. um, but it's also not like you know, over the top, like frills or anything like that. It's just really beautiful, simple sleepwear. Awesome. To wash them, you just use cold water and lay them flat to dry, which is like, what? How? how? <laughs> nothing. Washing nothing is that easy. Nope. And their washable silk is also thermoregulating. If you don't know what that means, it means it keeps you warm when you're cool and cools you down when you're warm. Mm. So find out why Sophia and the Fast Company are raving about Lunya and get 15% off your first purchase when you go to lunya.co and enter promo code GIRLBOSS. That's L-U-N-Y-A dot co. Enter promo code GIRLBOSS for 15% off your first purchase. Lunya, sleepwear for the modern woman. Also, every woman who's attending the girl boss rally at the end of this week is getting a gift card from lunya so you better come to our next girl boss rally (laughs) because we're all gonna sleep together success it's such a complicated idea and yet for so long we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Emily Chang is an Emmy Award-winning journalist, tech guru, LinkedIn influencer, and author. As a journalist, she's worked for some of the most prestigious news institutions, including CNN and Bloomberg TV. She interviewed me once on stage at the Vanity Fair conference. During her time at CNN, Emily was stationed in Beijing, China, and reported on prominent stories, including China's economic transformation and its environmental consequences, North Korea's nuclear ambitions, and President Obama's historic visit to Asia. 
After she left CNN, she joined Bloomberg TV. On Bloomberg, she started a daily show featuring original reporting and interviews with tech newsmakers, including venture capitalists, CEOs, startup entrepreneurs, and analysts. What's cool about this job is you and I, we're always interviewing new people every day, and it's it's like an everyday education. Emily has interviewed some of tech's biggest names, including Twitter co-founder Ev Williams, LinkedIn co-founder and executive chairman Reid Hoffman, Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and so many more. I was actually in Washington, D.C., inside the Zuckerberg hearing, and it was fascinating. Now she's here to talk about her new book, which I love, Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley. Obviously, people need to look harder. They need to try harder. And I fully believe that the people who are changing the world can do that. They can hire women and pay them fairly and fund their ideas. Emily will share where women in tech stand today and how we can increase our position by ending many of the inherently sexist practices that currently exist in the Valley. We'll get to our chat with Emily in just a moment. But first, Maggie and I are going to chat about what's going on in the Girlboss offices this week. Oh, my gosh, there's so much going on. What's up, Maggie? All right. Just a couple of Girlboss gals. Well, we relaunched the website last week. If you didn't see it, go to girlboss.com. It is so pretty. Mm-hmm. It is sexy. And mm-hmm. the girl boss rallies in just three days. Oh, my God. I can't even believe are it. Are we ready? I think we are. I, I think, mean, we're in I good shape. I think we are, but we are relaunching a website and hosting a conference for 750 women at the same time is like... A lot of coffee. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of coffee yep. and pizza and pastries. Oh, God. So what's going on? We have a piece on... Overcoming getting started. Yeah. It's a really cool concept. I mean, a lot of us, you know, are insecure about certain things, uh, have thoughts driven by fear that cause us to just never end up doing something about an idea we have or a really creative solution we want to invent. We just kind of hold it inside and and just keep it there. Um, And so it's Mel Robbins, right? Mm -hmm. who gives this advice. What's the advice? Yeah, she's, if you don't know who Mel Robbins is, she's an amazing career coach. Uh, She is actually the author of this piece, and she encourages us to get on board of this five-second rule. When I first read that, I thought she was talking about, you know, dropping food on the floor, picking it up, and eating. (laughs) It's not that one, but I do, I'm okay with that one, too. Um, But this one is actually, anytime you have an idea that seems like a sure thing or that you're really, really passionate about, act to advance it within five seconds. So, you know, acting quickly, doing something now rather than keeping it to yourself and thinking it over um, until it dies inside your head because of the fear. For too long. Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. that's really important. So many people have such great ideas and feel really strongly about them, but don't know where to start and where you you start where you start. Like you start by doing something. Mm -hmm. You start by doing the first thing that you think you might need to do or you look to the end and start doing, taking the actions that you think are going to get you to the end. But I also believe that sometimes we just need to sit on things before we, you know, just let them stew a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I believe in this, but I also believe in just a little bit of waste in the creative process is probably necessary for those ideas to really fully bake. Mm -hmm. So I think both, both work. But at the end of the day, no matter how fast or slow you are, you have to be taking action in your life if you want anything to happen. Right. Or even writing it down so it feels more real than just something you've conjured up in your head. Yeah, and the know? more the more chances you give yourself to meet that person or mm-hmm. start that business or say yes to something, the more things are going to start happening in your life. And I think a lot of people don't go out and just let those moments of chaos happen that will lead them Mm -hmm. to these things that they 
don't even know are coming or don't know how these people are going to help them. Mm-hmm. So say yes. Yeah. My mom always um, used to say, shoulda, woulda, coulda, as if, you know, like don't leave any regrets in the past or behind. And um, I always carried that with me because mm-hmm. whenever I'm scared or intimidated, I'm just like, who cares if I don't want to look back and think shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. There's very few things that are too great to lose. So in a lot of ways, it's like, really, what do you have to lose? Mm-hmm. It's like, what, you're going to be embarrassed? Like, if you're not willing to be embarrassed, like, you don't deserve it. You don't mm-hmm. deserve to have what you want. <laughs> We're going to come up with so many ideas. I mean, one of those is bound to be that, like, million-dollar baby, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would hate for, if, if it was me, I'd hate for, like, that one idea just not to get built out because I was scared. Someone will do it before and then you. Someone, exactly. Ideas pr- no, none of our ideas are really that unique, yeah. myself included. You just have to be the person that does something about it's it. It's true. It's really true. Well, thank you, Maggie. And again, go to girlboss.com if you want to see the most beautiful Mm. website that uh, you've ever seen and that our team worked so, so hard on. And we worked with a team called Wonder Sauce Mm -hmm. out of New York. They also have an office here in L.A. and they did a really great job Mm -hmm. on the site with us. Now get ready to hear from journalist and author Emily Chang. You grew up in Hawaii. I did. What was that like? When? At what point did you get off the island? It was awesome. So I was born and raised. So I left when oh. I was 18. I went to college on the East Coast. I had no idea how to dress for the winter. I didn't understand the concept of layering. Um, and I thought if I just wore a J. Crew pea coat, I'd be good. Uh-huh. But I was still freezing and I would run between classes in my flip-flops. But Hawaii was amazing. I mean, I grew up on the beach. I was chasing the sun all the time. Oh, my God. And Do you surf? I have surfed. I am not very good. I'm not either. And I'm kind of scared. So surfing is not my thing. I prefer to sunbathe. If I'm going to fall on something, <laughs> I want to be able to see it before I fall on it. Like, it, I don't need coral coming out of, like, the like ether. Right. And like, the rocks, the surfboard potentially hitting you in the face. Yeah. I mean, other surfers running into you. It's it's not as idyllic as it sounds. So your dad was born in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So my dad was born in Taiwan, and his mom was actually from Hawaii. So he they moved back to Hawaii when oh, he was wow. five years old. And my mom is Italian and born in Philadelphia. And they met Georgetown. And ended up moving back to Hawaii and never left. Wow. How do you feel like being a first-generation American has shaped your career? Well, I don't feel quite like a first-generation American because my dad's mom was born in the United States. But he did grow up speaking Mandarin and then lost it when he moved at five (laughs) years old because it was not cool to not know English. And so he sort of repressed it. And, you know, back then it wasn't cool to know a second language. You know, you had to learn English. Growing up in Hawaii is definitely different than growing up on the mainland, as we call it. You know, but I, I think there was there was always something special about it. Um, and, you know, some people don't understand it and, and it's fun to explain. But, you know, we had school. I went to the same school that President Obama went to, wow. which was pretty awesome. And, you know, great people, wonderful quality of life. What great island education. were you on? I lived on Oahu and was born and raised in a town called Kailua, which is one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. And I went to a school called Punahou School. My mom was a teacher there. It was very idyllic. Sounds idyllic. That was the word I was going to use. <laughs> so you went to Harvard. I mean, I know you said you went to college on the East Coast, but you went to Harvard. How has that changed the life of your career? They say Harvard is the most like social of the 
Ivy League schools, like the right, like there was. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that. I do think that the the best thing I got out of Harvard was the amazing friends that I made and the community that I have, and. You know, I, I'm super close to my girlfriends from college, even though we all live in different cities. And what was interesting about Harvard is even though it is one of the best schools in the country, it didn't have what I wanted to do. It didn't have a journalism program and it didn't have it didn't. There was no sort of concrete path. If you want to be a TV journalist, what can you do? And so I really had to carve my own path. And so I got an internship at the news station in Honolulu my freshman year of college. And every summer it was a different internship. So Good Morning America in New York, the local station in San Francisco. And then I was a writer at the station in Boston my senior year of college. And I started right after 9-11. So there was a lot of work to do. Um, And I just fell in love with telling stories and presenting stories and, you know, found a way to make my own way. I, I did I did apply to master's in journalism programs after college, but I ended up getting a job at NBC. So I decided not to go back to school. It's not bad. Which was, yes, that was a good decision. It was a good decision. So did you always want to be in reporting? At what point were you like, I'm really good at talking and learning things and telling stories? I started out as a pre-med. And in my chemistry class, I realized... I wasn't having a lot of fun talking to people, and I really enjoyed talking to people and having conversations with the amazing people who were going to Harvard. And so I switched to um, a liberal arts degree, and in in the summer I needed a job, and and I thought, well, what do I like to do? I like to sing. I was in acapella. Don't tell anyone. I, you know, do love to perform, but I also love writing and telling stories, and I thought, well... TV journalism seems like it could be a good option. Let me try it. And I just, I absolutely loved it. I would do an eight-hour, sh- so you work for free, generally, when you're doing a news internship. And I would work for eight hours shadowing reporters. And then I would work another eight hours doing my own stories and my own resume tape and putting something together that I could show someone um, who I hoped would mm-hmm. say, okay, you have potential. <laughs> At what point did it become easy for you? Because, I mean, even on this podcast, we edit the podcast. Like, I gave a talk at a Village Global event yesterday up in in Menlo Park. And, I mean, I had note cards, and it was a 10-minute talk. And I practiced for my, like, 10-minute talk with my note cards. That's hard. Talking for 10 straight minutes by yourself, that's hard. I would have to practice that, too. But, like, your brain has to connect really quickly to your mouth to, like, interview somebody. And, like, oh, you're interviewing Dick Costolo. He talks really fast. And, like, he's saying interesting things. And you have to you have to drive that conversation. You have to move it in a direction that you want to. Sometimes people will try to move it in a different direction if you're interviewing them. I mean, that takes so much practice. What, what, what were you like in the beginning? So I would write down literally all my questions and I would stare at my script and I would look back up and I wouldn't listen to the answer. And I realized that was not a very good idea. Um, and when it got easier for me is when I learned to listen because it is hard to sort of go where the conversation is going and follow up without, you know, losing track of where you're going to go next. Or acknowledging what the person just exactly. said. Exactly. Yeah. And I found that when I was almost a little less prepared, I actually did a better job because I was listening. You're just having more. a conversation. That's not to say I don't still get nervous. Like I interviewed Cheryl Sandberg a couple of weeks ago. They're in the middle of this huge Facebook crisis, and I had important questions to ask, and I was also a little nervous. Um, when I sit down with Tim Cook, like the CEO of Apple, that makes me nervous, which I think is what's cool about this job is, you know, you and I, we're always interviewing new people every day, and it's, it's like an everyday education. Emily has interviewed 
the largest leaders in the tech space, from Mark Zuckerberg to Sheryl Sandberg to Twitter's co-founder and Twitter's CEO, Dick Costolo. I asked Emily what the most interesting interview she's ever done was, because so many of these people are just so scripted, and sometimes something really interesting comes out. I have really loved, I, I, I do a daily show, which is, you know, shorter interviews. And then I do a long form show called um, Bloomberg Studio 1.0, where I get to sit for an hour with someone. And that's where I've just, I, I love hearing people's stories. I love hearing how they got to where, where they are. And I've just had the opportunity to interview some incredible people, whether it is Mark Zuckerberg and Melinda Gates. My mom actually came with me to that interview. And as she was on her way out, she offered to take a picture with my mom. And I think my mom, you know, could have died right then and a happy woman. And so, you know, I just I I just love, you know, being able to talk to people who are on the front lines of doing some incredible things and changing the world. It's it's a really fun job. Do you find that some of these people because I went to Code Media and they interviewed Susan Wojcicki and the people who are in charge of the news feed at Facebook. And I mean, they still make headlines because they might say a sentence they've already said slightly differently. But these people are so buttoned up. Like, do you ever get things that are like, whoa, I can't believe I got that out of them? Yes. So it's been interesting being on the other side of the table now and being interviewed about my book, which has also been terrifying and a learning experience, but now I'm kind of used to it and it's become really fun. I was interviewing, and this is actually in chapter five of, of my book, a venture capitalist, very powerful venture capitalist who had no female partners in the U.S. part of his firm at the time. And I said, you know, I've really made it sort of my mission to ask about this over the last few years. What are you doing to hire women? What are you doing to promote women? What are you doing to fund women? And I said to him, you have no women partners. What are you doing about that? And he said, oh, we look very hard. I believe we're completely gender blind, race blind, blind to religion and sexuality. But what we're not prepared to do is to lower our standards. And when he said that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Who is this? Because it's public. It's public. It's uh, Mike, Mike Moritz, who's the chair of Sequoia Capital. Oh, wow. Legendary investor. This, the crustiest of the crusty on <laughs> Sand Hill Road, though. <laughs> he invested in Google. He has made yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. He, You know, you're an entrepreneur. Most they have I, Jess Lee now. Everything's... I, Jess Lee is... is as far as I know, fantastic. Um, but every, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs would die to get a check from Sequoia. And so when he said that, it, I, I expected a politically correct answer, and that was not the politically How long correct ago was answer. That? that was at the end of November, uh, the end of 2015, November. And actually, it's what lit the spark that led me to write the book. Emily's new book, Brotopia, explores the inherent sexism in Silicon Valley and how to break up the boys' club of the tech industry. I asked her what compelled her to write the book and what she hopes the reader gets out of it. You know, I've always cared about this issue, but, you know, in the earlier days when I was building my show, it was kind of not polite to ask these questions for some reason. And as I became more courageous about asking these questions, you know, I realized, you know, there's so much more to why, right? And when Mike Moore had said that to me, I felt like for the first time someone had actually told me the truth and it revealed part of the problem, right? People think they have to lower their standards to hire women, which is ridiculous. And everywhere I went, every, people wanted to talk about what he had said. And they were mostly horrified. Some people didn't see a problem with it. 
shockingly. It made headlines, right? It made headlines. You know, Vanity Fair had a headline, something like, here's news to all you smart tech women out there. Apparently, you don't exist. So, you know, obviously, people need to look harder. They need to try harder. And I fully believe that the people who are changing the world can do that. They can hire women and pay them fairly and fund their ideas. And I never thought I could write a book. I had some really great role models around me, some colleagues who are who are also authors. I saw people like you, and Aww. I thought, maybe I can do this. And it's been, honestly, the biggest challenge of my entire career, but also the most rewarding, and I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. There's a bit in your book about, like, the beginning of tech and why, th- how things have evolved into the existing Brotopia, uh, because it didn't start with bros, right? It started with women. Tell me that story. This was like the smoking gun. So, you know, a lot of the sort of modern day Silicon Valley I know because I've been covering it for the last eight years. The history was so surprising to me. First of all, women played huge role in the computing industry in the early days. They were programming computers for the military and programming computers for NASA. It was literally like hidden figures, but industry-wide. And then as the tech industry was exploding in the 60s and 70s, and they were desperate for new talent, they started doing these personality tests and aptitude tests to look for good programmers. And they decided that good programmers, quote, don't like people. Well, if you look for people who don't like people, the research tells us you'll hire far more men than women. (laughs) And there's no evidence that people who don't like people are better at this job than people who do or that men are better at this job than women. But it perpetuated this stereotype of the antisocial, mostly white male nerd that exists to this day. And companies as big as IBM, (laughs) you, you, you can fill in the blanks. You can fill in the blanks. Um, But look, people think pop culture created this stereotype. It did not. The tech industry created this stereotype, and it shuts out more than half the population. You know, in 1984, women were earning 37% of computer science degrees. That has plummeted. It's been at 18% for the last decade. Women had, you know, 30-something percent of jobs in the 80s. Now they're at, you know, close to 20%. In technology specifically? In the tech, across the tech industry. Wow. I mean, that's devastating because I think about all, you know, how different the world might be if women had had a seat at the table in the beginning, you know, if, you know, investors weren't only looking for people who looked like Mark Zuckerberg or looked like Bill Gates Mm -hmm. when they were funding new ideas. I think about all the women who didn't get the opportunity to start the next Facebook or the next Google or the next Apple. It's no secret that women get harassed a thousand bazillion, you don't need the metric, times more online than most men. So I wonder, what sort of backlash has Emily endured, and why does that happen? How do we build these things that don't accommodate women and allow things like this to happen? I interviewed Ev Williams, the co-founder of Twitter. Who I love. I do really like Ev, and he was really honest with me about this. He said... You know, I think if we had had women on the early Twitter team that maybe online harassment and trolling wouldn't be such a problem. We weren't thinking about that when we were building this. We were thinking, what are all the wonderful and amazing things that can be done with Twitter? Not how can it be used to send death threats or how can it be used to send rape threats? And perhaps if they had more women on the team who might be more attuned to, first of all, women get the most extreme forms of online harassment, maybe the product would have been designed differently. And, you know, we think that 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 online hate exists because people are just mean. Well, in fact, the very way these systems are designed can encourage that kind of behavior. 
And there's, you know, lots of evidence to show that if you actually change the rules, people will start behaving different, differently. Mm-hmm. The medium is the message, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So why did you get into tech? We didn't really cover that. So I became a TV journalist. I was working in local news. I worked my way up. I ended up at CNN in London and Beijing. I went to Beijing to cover the Olympics and I stayed for two years in China and I was covering, you know, presidential visits and earthquakes and floods and North Korea. And I got an offer from Bloomberg to launch a tech show in San Francisco. And I thought, me? I'm, I mean, I use tech, but I'm not an expert on technology. And so they really took a chance on me. And uh, the learning curve was very steep. And I read a ton of TechCrunch articles every day preparing myself. You know, we really built the show from scratch. And I learned a lot. And it's, 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 it's interesting because at the beginning, I, you know, I, I didn't know if I could do it. And now I have, you know, such a depth of knowledge across so many different topics because we do an hour show every day with, you know, five, six, ten guests who are, you know, covering all different stories every day. Um, and so I, it was kind of, you know, that everyday education, but on, you know, uh, hyperspeed. Yeah. You know, I just had to learn fast. Do you ever do, is it, are they live shows? Live. Oh my God. Day. Oh my God. That's so stressful. Two o'clock Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Television. It's also streaming on the website. Well, at least you don't <laughs> have to wake up at like 4 a.m. to do like the morning news show. It's a pretty... You know, my schedule is very good, and especially for for being a mom, I have three kids. Yeah, I've found a way to have you know, you know, you know, both a career in television, which you know you can have in, insane hours, super early mornings or super late nights. Um, but in, in business, you know, we're following the markets, and so the markets close at a certain time, which is great if mm-hmm. you're a parent. <laughs> and you've had your show for a really long time. Yeah, it's been eight years. Cool. It's been eight years. It's been an incredible run. Have you ever thought about starting a company? (laughs) You know, what's been interesting about my show is I've been able to sort of reinvent the show and myself every few years. So we, we have the Daily Show, which has been there from the beginning. And then three years in, I thought, you know, I want to have longer conversations. And I started doing a series, an interview series called Bloomberg Studio 1.0, which I mentioned earlier, where I'd have long form conversations. And then sort of three years into that, I wrote a book. And so it's been a way to sort of keep challenging myself and keep things fresh. And Bloomberg has been super supportive of that. People have suggested starting a company and I should I should probably be asking you for your advice. I mean, it sounds terrifying. You it's know, totally terrifying. Each of these things has been my own little startup. And I've, it's certainly crossed my mind, but um, but of course I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. Yeah, you have to be a real glutton for punishment. You have to be comfortable delaying gratification and saying, like, I'm going to take a big pay cut and work crazy hours to build this thing called enterprise value. That means hopefully my company will be worth something down the road where my stake in it is is makes up for all the time that I spent getting paid less than I would otherwise. And right? I am in awe of what you have done and what, you know, I get to interview entrepreneurs every day. I'm so in awe and especially female entrepreneurs, which I have a whole book about why, you know, starting your own company as a woman is such a huge risk Mm -hmm. and the odds are stacked against you. But there are success stories like you, like Katrina Lakett Stitch Fix, like Jen Hyman, who was my classmate at Harvard, who is the CEO of Rent the Runway. And, you know, they've done such incredible things and are such great role models for people who do want to do this. 
We have so much more with Emily Chang coming up, but first let's talk about Stitch Fix. So we all know Katrina Lake is a badass. I want to have Mm -hmm. her on this podcast. Emily has had the pleasure of interviewing her. And Stitch Fix, I mean, they've built a huge, incredible business on being able to predict what you're going to like. You show up, you fill out a style profile, and Stitch Fix will send you clothes, shoes, accessories picked out just for you. And if it didn't work, they wouldn't have IPO'd the company, and (laughs) it wouldn't have been the largest female-led IPO in all of, I think it was 2017. Wow. So you can try things on. You're only charged for what you keep, and sending everything back is totally free and easy. And there's no subscription required. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or just whenever you feel like it, ad hoc. So get started now at stitchfix.com slash girlboss. And you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot com slash girlboss to try Stitch Fix today. That's stitchfix.com slash girlboss. We're going to continue with Emily in just a minute, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about Skillshare. Oh, man. Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes in business, marketing, entrepreneurship, technology, and more. Basically, anything that you, if you're a listener, want to learn. I mean, they have 18,000 classes mm-hmm. in business, marketing, entrepreneurship, technology, and you can learn pretty much anything you want. Social media strategy, Google Analytics. What do you want to learn, Maggie? Honestly, I was just going to say, I need to learn more about Excel. Google mm. Excel. They have Ugh. a class literally to become a master in those. Which I want to be a master. I need to learn more about like finance stuff, like for business. Me too. I'm like, okay. Organizing it. better, but. They oh. have um, a class on how to bake the best onion poppy seed bagels. Ooh, yum. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access to over 18,000 classes for just 99 cents. That's how confident they are that you're going to come back. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. 